All right, Nick. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that? Yeah, you know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten and probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries. Yeah, as I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas, so not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening, if you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics. This is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med Project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG Project and OBG First as well as that resident core curriculum absolutely free heading to our website at www.creagsovercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up. Hi guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. All right, so Faye, we continue in this Star Wars-like epic saga through diabetes, um, <laughs> and we're on episode four now, so we're getting to the new stuff. Um, today, we're going to talk about continuous glucose monitors. I guess that's backwards from Star Wars, actually. Episode four was the old one, huh? Uh, I thought I, you were going to say, you know, a new hope, continuous uh, glucose monitor. Wow, that would have been really great. Um, I'm disappointed <laughs> I didn't think of that. All right, well, let's get to it. What are our learning objectives? Yeah, so today we're going to understand what a continuous glucose monitor actually is and who may have a continuous glucose monitor that comes to you for care in pregnancy or right before. We're then going to review how a CGM works and how it can be useful in treating diabetes. And then we're going to, you know, just start to begin to learn how to manage blood sugars based off of CGM data. And don't worry, we won't talk about pumps because that's a little bit too complicated for what we need to know for our learning purposes. All right, Nick, so give us some background. You know, what exactly is a continuous glucose monitor? Yeah, I feel like people are starting to see these more and more frequently. And I feel like I'm seeing them even in like popular magazines and on the internet and stuff of like cool health devices to wear now. It's kind of incredible. Yeah. But, um, that's what they are. They're wearable devices that you can put on the back of the arm or put on your stomach or around the buttocks that basically is composed of a sensor and a transmitter. The sensor is really a small needle with a probe that sits in the skin and measures the blood sugar in the interstitial fluid. It typically will clip from there into a transmitter that can send the information back to a device. Um, often nowadays, it's actually via Bluetooth to somebody's cell phone um, or goes to a website that your physician can check or sometimes to like a particular device that the company makes. Sometimes it kind of requires scanning the transmitter with the phone or again one of those proprietary devices to be able to demonstrate the blood sugar in real time. 
Now, when you have a sensor that is on, um, it typically can be worn for about 7 to 14 days and should be active over 70% of the time. Certain CGMs are really cool in that they sync with insulin pumps to help better regulate blood sugar. And this is something that's known as hybrid closed loop insulin technology. Um, again, really, really neat stuff things that we won't really get into today, um, but is revolutionizing the care, particularly of type 1 diabetes. In terms of patients you might see that have CGMs, um, this is most common, again, in patients with type 1 diabetes. It really, again, is being demonstrated as really important for the care for these patients. And so insurances are essentially more likely to cover it for patients with type 1 diabetes. Some patients with type 2 diabetes may also have CGMs, though I'd say that this is probably less common overall, but again, we're starting to come around to it. And then now it seems like more patients with gestational diabetes who are not able to do finger sticks or don't want to do finger sticks may also be wearing a CGM. Um, and as the affordability comes down, some patients may be buying these out of pocket to be able to do that instead of finger sticks. And so it's getting more and more important that us as general OBGYNs, as well as MFMs, kind of understand how to read CGM data and interpret it. So just again, as we mentioned in the last episode, finally are the glycemic targets in pregnancy. We want fasting sugars of under 95, one hour postprandials of under 140, or two hour postprandials of under 120. And that sort of frames the context of how we interpret this CGM data. Okay, Faye. So um, one of the incredible things about these CGMs is that they literally sit on your body, and so you can get blood sugar pretty much all the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. So while it's really great data to have, it can also be really confusing for us if we're not used to looking at CGM data. Because as you said, you know, we had these targets before, right? We look at fasting and postprandial. So that's four time points that we're looking at, which is really easy to remember. But now we have so much more. Basically, some of these CGMs are going to sample blood sugar like every five minutes, every two minutes. And so you're basically going to have a graph throughout 24 hours of someone's blood sugar at every single point of the day. So what do we make of this? And what is that mean. So other than, you know, opening up the reports and looking at their blood sugars on a day-to-day basis and taking a look, the other things that we should be looking at are things called glucose targets. Um, So these targets can be individualized, but in pregnancy, really the target of your blood sugar throughout the day should be somewhere between 63 to 140 milligrams per deciliter per the American Diabetes Association. And you can actually ask your patients um, to generate a report for you um, or when you log in, for example, with certain types of CGMs that allow sharing for a clinician, um, you can actually generate your own report and you can look at it for the last, you know, X amount of days, seven, 10 days to see what the patient, if they have been within these targets. Um, Some people will, of course, spend some time both above and below these targets. um, And some patients' targets may be individualized and different just depending on their diabetes care. But what we should really look at are kind of five things. So the continuous glucose metric and the pregnancy targets. So first of all, I want to talk about time in range. So in this target of 63 to 140, someone with good blood sugar control in pregnancy is going to spend 70% or more of their time in this pregnancy target of 63 to 140. Then, of course, there's time above range, what we call level one or high. Um, Basically, this is when the 
blood sugar is greater than 140, and you can set that you know, upper limit at 180, for example, and less than 25% of the time should the patient be in that range. And then there's the time above range level two, which is very, very, which is very high. Um, and again, you can set that, for example, at 180. Some people will set it at 200. And really, for those with well-controlled blood sugars, they should be spending 0% of their time in pregnancy in this range. And then, of course, there's the two ranges where they're below um, their targets. So basically, there's that level one time below range or when they're having a low. And this is usually when their blood sugar is 54 to 62 milligrams per deciliter. And patients really should be spending less than 4% of their time in this range. And then there's that time below range level two where they're very low, where the blood sugar is less than 54, and patients should be spending less than 1% of the time in this range. So this is, I think, a good way for us to at least on a larger scale, be able to kind of take a look to see what exactly um, the patient's targets have been and if they have been sitting within this target and if they have a good blood sugar control. All right, Nick. So, you know, now that we've kind of talked about these targets, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, are CGMs actually useful in treating diabetes? Why has this become so popular and why has insurance started to cover this for so many more people? And does it actually improve outcomes? The short answer is yes. Um, And we'll focus in just on the pregnancy literature here um, because that's the most pertinent, I think, to our practice as OBGYNs. There have been multiple studies done in patients with type 1 diabetes in pregnancy, but probably the largest and most significant of these was something called the Continuous Glucose Monitoring in Women with Type 1 Diabetes in Pregnancy Trial, um, also known as the CONCEPT trial. This was a multi-center RCT that that compared self-monitored blood glucose, i.e. finger sticks, with a CGM to finger sticks alone in 325 women who were either planning pregnancy or who were already pregnant. Those who had a CGM had a small but statistically significant difference in their A1C at the end of the study period, a decrease of about 0.2% overall. Um, But those who had a CGM also had statistically significant less time above range, so again above that 140, than the control group, and then didn't have any increase in their time below range or in the number of severe hypoglycemic episodes. So again, it seems to be bringing that above range time down. There are also differences in neonatal outcomes, which honestly might be the thing that we care the most about here. There are lower incidences in the treatment group of large for gestational age, lower incidence of neonatal hypoglycemia, and then fewer NICU admissions overall in patients who had CGMs. So in the end, it seems like CGMs can really be helpful in managing type 1 diabetes in pregnancy. I think there's a compelling argument to be made. What about other types of diabetes, though? Again, we talked to Pafei about type 2 diabetes and GDM as other patients who might be having CGMs. Sure. So unfortunately for those patients with type 2 diabetes, um, the outcomes in those with type 2 diabetes in pregnancies are less robust, and there are fewer studies overall. And really, there have been no randomized controlled trials that have specifically studied type 2 diabetes in pregnancies with CGM to date. So that's not to say that you know they aren't helpful for our patients with type 2 diabetes. We just don't have as good data as we do for those with type 1 diabetes. 
In terms of those with gestational diabetes, um, the largest study was actually a prospective cohort study in 2014 um, that looked at 340 women with gestational diabetes who had four weeks of blinded uh, continuous glucose monitor plus standard care or just standard care alone. And so in those who are blinded to receiving a CGM, these patients actually had lower rates of preeclampsia, improvement in CGM metrics, lower rates of neonatal composite outcomes. So that's including things like premature delivery, macrosomia, uh, large for gestational age status, small for gestational age status, obstetric trauma, neonatal hypoglycemia, hyperbilirubinemia, and respiratory distress. However, studies in general also show that those with CGMs are also more likely to receive insulin therapy, which makes a lot more sense. So some conclusions that we can draw from all of this data is that clearly continuous glucose monitors can improve outcomes in type 1 diabetes in those that are pregnant, but it is less clear in terms of outcomes for those with type 2 diabetes and potentially for gestational diabetes. And again, that's not to say that these patients should not wear continuous glucose monitors, but with this new newer data, um, currently the results that are there for type 1 diabetes are not necessarily there yet for type 2 diabetes and GDM. So Nick, I think the last question that we want to answer really is how do I manage those with a continuous glucose monitor? Yeah. So I think, you know, one thing to mention is a lot of these patients, again, have type 1 diabetes. So really much of the time, this is going to be a little bit more complex in terms of management when patients have CGM. So really leaning into endocrinology or maternal fetal medicine colleagues should be advised for this. The goal ultimately is to get the patient though into that 70% of their sugars being in the target range as we earlier described. Again, we're not going to talk about pumps and things like that because that just gets beyond the scope of this episode and gets beyond the scope of, I think, what a general needs to know and what you might need to know for like a CREOG exam or day-to-day -day practice. Um, but kind of we did talk recently though about injectable insulin. Just our last episode, um, we talked about insulin initiation, particularly for gestational diabetes or type 2 diabetes in pregnancy. Um, and so you can use CGM data in that case to just know when patients are having spikes in blood sugar and adjusting your insulin off of that basis. Um, remember kind of if you're having spikes after breakfast or dinner, um, if you're using that classic split mix NPH rapid acting insulin, you're going to follow those same rules where your rapid acting insulin is covering those particular meals and you're going to either increase or add those rapid acting insulins at those times. If you're following the classic split mix at lunch or overnight with fasting, you could either add additional fast acting with lunch or you can increase that long acting insulin to be able to cover either, again, your lunch or those fastings. Um, again, overnight, if there's a drop in glucose in the middle of the night um, and then an increase, we didn't mention this in the last episode. I didn't know this, Faye, but it's actually called the Samogi effect, um, where you get that overnight drop of insulin at around 4 a.m. and then get an increase after that. The way to address this, again, as we spoke about in the last episode, is either to kind of decrease a little bit nighttime long-acting insulin or to add a protein snack after dinner um, in order to kind of help ride through that storm, if you will. If overall blood sugar is elevated in the morning, again, increase that morning long acting insulin to help kind of just bring the ceiling down, so to speak. 
Remember, we talked about a lot of this last week in the episode um, in terms of managing insulin, so definitely take a look back at that with all of the insulin types. And again, sometimes it's just playing with this and getting the opportunity to really see the data in front of you. Um, so if you're a resident, definitely check out CGMs in your diabetes clinics because that's the best way to learn this. All right, Faye, I think that does it for today's episode on CGMs. Uh, why don't we try and summarize? Sure. So we first started this episode off by talking about what a CGM is. It's basically a wearable device um, that will tell you the interstitial blood sugar level. And it acts usually with a sensor as well as a transmitter that can basically show you the data on a phone, on a website, or on a special device that comes with the sensor and transmitter. Um, it can usually be worn for 7 to 14 days. And the other cool thing is that sometimes it can actually act with insulin pumps to help better regulate blood sugar in a closed-loop insulin technology. We're more likely to see these CGMs on patients with type 1 diabetes, but now we're seeing them more and more often, even in patients with type 2 diabetes or even those with GDM. And so it's really important that we learn how to use these CGMs to help us titrate their insulin and also better understand how well they're being controlled with their diabetes. When you first look at CGM data, it might be really confusing because now we're taking those four classic time points we thought about in pregnancy, the fasting and then the three postprandial measurements, and now we're getting blood sugar as often as every five minutes with these CGMs. So ultimately what we're going to be looking at are sort of our glucose targets or time in range ultimately. Again, Per the ADA, we want to maintain a time in range or blood sugar of 63 to 140 mg per deciliter better than 70% of the time. We want to minimize time above range and really minimize time below range to avoid the harms of hypoglycemia. In terms of the data that shows us if CGM is actually useful in treating diabetes, we have a great randomized trial in those with type 1 diabetes in pregnancy that shows better outcomes for mom in terms of decrease in A1C, but also it actually shows better neonatal outcomes like lower incidence of LGA, reduction in neonatal hypoglycemia, and fewer NICU admissions. So really, CGMs can definitely be helpful in managing type 1 diabetes. However, the data is just not quite there yet with those with type 2 diabetes in pregnancy, and also the data is still still less robust for those with gestational diabetes, but this does not necessarily mean that we cannot be using uh, CGMs in those with type 2 diabetes and gestational diabetes. And then finally, in terms of management of CGMs, often these patients, again, have type 1 diabetes, so manage alongside endocrinology or maternal fetal medicine. But the goal, generally speaking, is again to get that 70% of blood sugar time in target range. Um, injectable insulins, remember last week on the show, we talked a lot about the physiology of insulin. And so when you're thinking about how to make an adjustment based on CGM data, you kind of have to know the physiology of the particular insulins, when it will impact and the timing of administration in order to make appropriate adjustments. We go through some examples of that on the website, so check it out. All right, Faye, well, I think that does it for today. Once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Kriogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Kriogs Over Coffee 1, on Instagram and Facebook at Kriogs Over Coffee, or if you love the show, head over to patreon.com slash Kriogs Over Coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. 
You can find show notes for this show and all of our other diabetes episodes in the saga, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, www.creagedovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hello, or suggest to us something other than diabetes to cover, email us, craigsovercoffee at gmail.com.